Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 151 of the Doss and D Show and be prepared for an absolute eye-opening one as we sit down with Natalie London, Director of Project Rescue Children. Project Rescue Children protects children across the globe from child sex trafficking. Through their initiative, they are saving hundreds of children a year from child sex trafficking, organ harvesting and pedophiles. For the first 25 minutes or so of this episode, you'll hear about Natalie and her career leading up to Project Rescue Children. From then on after, we go deep into the dark and disgusting world which many of us are so naive to. Natalie shares with us the alarming amount of people who exist in a dark web community of pedophiles and their horrific colluding to swap images, grooming techniques and even ways to avoid serious punishment when caught. Plus, the high-powered members of society who are part of it as well. Natalie explains how innocuous photos online of young kids posted by their parents can quickly make them the target for these people. We learn about what is happening abroad and how children get sold into child sex trafficking and organ harvesting, some of the most gruesome stuff you're likely to hear. You'll also be shocked to hear how and why so many get away with the most disgusting of crimes here on our shores by the trips Westerners take to third world countries to take part in the unthinkable. But once your eyes are open to what is going on, you'll hear the incredible life-saving work Natalie and PRC are doing to bring this information into the light and put an end to it. As hard and disturbing as this episode may be to listen to, we know it's such an important message to get out there as we just don't hear enough about it. As always, guys, click that subscribe button so you never miss a future episode of the Dawson D Show and follow us on all our social platforms. But for now, brace yourself for this one, folks. Here is the incredible Natalie London. So we haven't done this one for a while, Dave. We're on Zoom, which we don't love, obviously. But for this specific reason, we needed to get this guest on because it's a topic we've never touched on before and something um, we're really, really excited to hear more about. Natalie London from Project Rescue Children. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really keen to have this chat with you guys. We're so excited to dive in, Natalie, and I'm sure this is going to be one of the most eye-opening episodes we've ever done. And it could be a tough listen for some, but um, I'm really looking forward to to hearing about what you guys do, but also your story. So I think a good place to start is give us a little bit of a background on yourself. Yeah, so I actually grew up in the snowy mountains of New South Wales. So I grew up with my mum and my dad and my two brothers and I guess, yeah, growing up down there was amazing. You know, you grow up around a lot of snow sports and just like skiing and snowboarding from a young age. And so that was really cool. And then so many aspects of my life that have really led me to being in this role with Project Rescue Children. So if you'd like me to share, did you want me to share like the journey of just like... Absolutely. Let's hear it. Not just who I am, but just like how it started. So basically, I actually at 12 years old, I decided to applied to a boarding school so once primary school was done it just yeah I applied for boarding school and moved away to boarding school at 12 years old and I mean after you know growing up in Jindabai and having like this awesome experience of like all the snow sports and everything you kind of find that as you get towards um approaching high school things kind of get complicated people are you know, um, trying to figure out who they are. And I learned from a really young age that I had to really stand on my own two feet and just like look after myself. Yeah, I, I went to boarding school for then six years. So that was just such a huge experience in my life, um, you know, moving away from home and not necessarily having that support system that everyone else grows up and has around them all the time when you get home from school and, you know, all the highs and lows with everything that you experience. So you know, during those six years at boarding school, I definitely grew and adapted like who I was and started figuring out just like exactly, I don't know, I, I guess you kind of 
through all the highs and lows of what you go through in your teenage years, you kind of like you sink or swim, right? So, and then especially when you're at boarding school. So I ended up discovering that I just, I love to write and I loved a lot of personal development and reading personal development books. And my mum was quite um, open-minded in the space of personal development as well. And when I started to face, you know, some challenges from being away from home and so forth, she recommended a few books to me and I really got stuck into them. And just from the get-go, I I don't know, I was such a young age and I started learning about like um, empowerment and like mirror work. So like, you know, like building yourself up, like, like, and just like, like, have you heard of mirror work? Like when it came to like- I have, I have. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, from a young age, I was at boarding school and I I had like a little, we had like bunk beds. I slept in a room with like eight other girls. Oh no, there was eight of us in total. And we had like our bunk bed and then we had like a tiny little desk and like a little cupboard and you'd open the door. And that was basically the only privacy that you get was opening that door and being in there. So there was like times where like you'd go through things and you'd feel upset or scared or nervous or just all the things that you experience when you're a teenager. And I'd started learning like all these coping uh, mechanisms, techniques like journaling and stuff. So, yeah, I became really passionate about personal development and that kind of growth from a young age. I even, all my friends at boarding school, they'd always come to me if ever they had to write like a a challenging text or something like that. I would always be that one that someone would come to, my friends would come to for like that pick me up and that emotional support. So I kind of became that person from a young age. At boarding school, I also became like a um, a dorm monitor as well. So I looked after the young girls that were starting. So there'd be, we'd have like that room of the eight 12-year-old girls that had just started. And I was basically their, um, yeah, I was basically their support system. So I, I went through that just development of myself through all that experience as well, like helping them being homesick and just helping them, you know, remind, reminding them like simple tasks like hygiene and making sure that they ate and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and you know, throughout my years um, there as well, I also became aware that um, people close to me had experienced child sexual abuse and firsthand I I witnessed exactly how it had impacted their life several, several years after the fact. That was just a huge experience for me. And that went on, I, I witnessed and experienced that and supported them through that for many years. Well, and I experienced like my own feelings of like anxiety and this and that just through the life experiences as well. So there was a lot of a lot of support that I also received. Um, I went through experiencing like a family breakdown as well while I was at boarding school. So my family separated whilst I was at boarding school. So then there was the whole going home and family not being there and things being very different. So from a very young age, the ages of 18, I, I grew a lot and I experienced things that not many kids actually do experience now that I look back on it. Like it was very intense. Um, it was a very intense childhood. So yeah, after having experienced boarding school, I transitioned into the workforce and all my friends are going to uni and that just wasn't for me I've just never fitted into fitted into a societal box that's for sure and I just like everyone was picking their degrees that they wanted to go do and I just wasn't ready for that yeah and I don't operated so much from my heart and had explored so many of like you know personal development and my emotions and so many things through all my journaling as well because I've still got like so many like diaries that I wrote like metaphorical stories or poems and everything and whilst I was at boarding school so I was very self-reflective definitely had my highs and my lows so yeah after finishing school I was like well I don't 
like being a clinical nurse doesn't suit me. Being a teacher doesn't feel right for me. Like there was careers that were being suggested to me and I was like, none of it just really suited me because I was such a big picture person as well. So narrowing things right down just didn't really work for me. Finished school and went and had some fun, went back down to the snow and did um did a snow season down there and met my now husband. And that was like a, a really, it was a bit of downtime, I guess, in my life. It was just an opportunity for me to be a bit freer and to just, yeah, figure out a bit more of who I was, meet some really great people that are still very close with me. So that's really nice. Cool. And then from, yeah, there, it was mainly just like figuring out where I fitted in the world, what I wanted to do. And I just hopped around from like, quite a few job opportunities for a while there. And then it got to a point in about 2015 where I started to feel like I just, I felt like what I was doing started to feel a bit pointless. Like I'd given meaning to so many jobs and things I was doing that they were contributing some way. But I think I got to a point where I felt really low and I felt like I really wanted to contribute more. I wanted to do more. I had this passion within me and I didn't quite know exactly what to do and I actually specifically remember I was at home and I'd woken up in the morning and my um my now husband Dane he was actually leaving to go on like a bucks party and like so I was saying goodbye to him he was going away for the weekend and I actually I had to I worked Saturday so I had to go to work that day and I just felt like just like low and lost and just like I didn't even want to pull myself up to go to that job because it just didn't it just didn't work for me anymore. It didn't inspire me. It didn't excite me. And I actually, I, I did end up getting myself up. I went to work, but then when I was there, I was flicking through my social media and an ad popped up for life coaching. And yeah, how, how, So how old were you at that stage? So I was, I just turned 24. I let this ad popped up for this like life coaching college. And I started reading like into life coaching and I was like, wow, this like sounds really inspiring. This like lights me up, makes me feel like me, like it excited me. So, um, yeah, next step, basically there. And then I actually, when I was at work, I, I called the number and inquired about the college and, and everything that they said, I was, I called around a couple of colleges and some of them didn't, didn't feel right to me because I'm very intuitive. So I go with like what feels right as well as what looks right. Ended up applying to go to this coaching college and, I got a lot of backlash from like some friends and such that had gone and done like big degrees and everything. They were like, oh, what, like, is it a degree? And I'm like, no. And I was like, it's just like courses and like you, you learn to be a practitioner, like you do like your therapies and like there was just like so many different therapies and practices and stuff that you go and you learn one-on-one. And anyway, there was a lot of like, oh, like, okay, like kind of thing, like that's lost. Like that's kind of what it felt like. It's Yeah, it's not the usual, you know, that everyone's used to seeing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially back then, because that was quite the early days when when coaching was starting to come through. So I went and I did quite a bit of that. And um, I, like I got quite a few certifications at the coaching, um, the Life Coaching College. And a big turning point in my life was then in 2016, one of my best friends from boarding school, she asked if I wanted to go on a trip to Vietnam and Cambodia with her. And like, of course, like, so yeah, we, we signed up and we, um, yeah, organized our entire trip, went over and did like a few weeks in Vietnam and Cambodia. And it was just incredible, like such a beautiful life experience. And we learned quite a bit about like the culture and the history while we were there as well. 
And I felt like I definitely felt this uh, like connection to Cambodia, this like attachment to the story and just like the history and so forth. And then it just so happened that when I came home, like I never watched like mainstream TV. It's not really for me, but I just turned the TV on one day. There was a documentary on and the documentary was actually about young women that had been sex trafficked in Cambodia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is when I got back in 2016. I'd just gone back from the trip and I was like, what are the chances of a documentary about Cambodia being on? And the fact that it was linked to sex trafficking as well, which, you know, sparked quite a lot of passion within me because of what I had seen, the result of other people surviving child sexual abuse and what, what impact that had on them and that connection to me wanting to do something good in the world. And basically from there, I went to one of the um, classes at the college, at the coaching college, and there was a um, a man there that ran, he builds like, he helps people build like online platforms where you can build it. And then that way, when you have, when I had like my coaching certification and everything, I could then put it out and I could like help people. Basically, I was building a movement and I ended up calling it Millennials on a Mission. But yeah, so I built this movement and I ended up getting like, couple of thousand people kept joining because I created like the vision, the mission and the purpose. And I advertised it to like visionaries and like called it like game changers and like world changers and people that had a vision that were millennials that wanted to like create an impact in the world. And my intention in the back of my head was that one day I would be able to utilize this group of people and go and do mission groups over in places like Cambodia help rehabilitate and re-inspire and re-empower these women that had been through sex trafficking. Uh, Like I look back at all that now and I'm just, I often forget that that was such a huge part of my awakening to sex trafficking because the next chapter came a few years later and that was so intense for me. So basically I created that movement, built it, I did like the coaching and everything. And then I shifted and I, I, I worked at a, Um, professional speaking institute for a bit because I wanted to learn how to do a keynote speech so when I went there they then offered me a job when I went to learn how to do a keynote they offered me a job so I worked there for a bit training and coaching people how to do keynotes I knew that I wanted to get back to helping youth I wanted to get back to helping kids that had experienced trauma and kids that had experienced you know hardships I wanted to re-inspire reignite rehabilitate and I was trying to find my way while I was at the Institute and I basically said to the CEO, look, I'm not, I'm not overly passionate about continuing this journey. I said, but I'd be open to doing like a youth speakers Institute. So I ended up sitting down with him and pitching this whole idea of creating like a youth speakers Institute where I could help train kids how to do keynotes and speak and, and just like coach them. And then it was only a couple of months later, I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to help kids that are advantaged enough to be able to pay to come to a coaching boot camp, like to a gotcha. camp, you know, I just started thinking and I was like, no, nah, that's just not where my heart lies. My heart lies helping kids that really, really need that help, you know. And then that's when COVID happened and the coaching, uh, the speaking institute shut down or it all went online for a bit there. And then my role there, because not many people were signing up because everyone was being locked down and the world had shifted and changed. So not many people were doing the boot camps and then um, positions were made redundant. And basically from there, that's when I was like, all right, this is my opportunity to do um, more youth work 
I was really passionate about going and, you know, helping kids in Australia. And, yeah, for a period of time, for about two and a half years now, I've been doing youth work. So I've stepped away from it at the moment, the last six months. But for two and a half years, I did, um, I worked in youth housing in Australia. And that was immensely eye-opening for me. So so what when you say youth housing, um, are they kids coming out of juvie or are they... You know, who are they that you're, I guess, looking after? It varies, but definitely in my particular field, it's um, alternate care arrangement. So basically the kids have either just been removed from a very um, dangerous or abusive household or circumstance and they need an emergency house to come and live in. And then there's also um, kids coming out of juvie that also have nowhere to be placed. So, and then there's circumstances where a lot of children in the Australian system, they have been in so many foster homes that haven't or foster homes that have either abused them or they have been like absolutely detrimental to these children's mental health and just like their wellness in general because of how they've been treated. Because a lot of the kids that came into alternate care arrangement, they're kind of they're they're higher in behaviour and they're also they haven't been able to be placed in like a resi house. So resi house is where like a lot of kids might be all in that house at once until they get placed in a foster home and they can generally be placed together because their behaviours are a bit more safe. But with my particular um, line of work, I was a therapeutic youth worker and I did 24-hour shifts in these individual houses where only one kid would be living, one, yeah, so one child in that house or siblings. So yeah. it would never be, it'd never be like a, a group of kids because um, these children had extreme, like they had extreme traumas, they had experienced child abuse, they had been in juvie for reasons that were potentially dangerous or yeah so for the two and a half years I experienced a lot in um in youth work it really really built my like my strength and my muscle around you know being able to help kids and also my passion towards helping kids as well I definitely learned that it was my purpose in this world and I didn't I didn't want to do anything else other than see children you know firstly not ever be in this circumstance where they do have these high behaviours because of their awful childhoods. Like, yeah, I wanted to be a part of uh, But the thing was when when you work in like these youth houses and the children are already this high behaviour, there's only so much impact you can have. So sure. like it gets yeah. to a point where like I might do a 48-hour session where I'm literally living there with the kid for 48 hours. Like I might do a 24-hour shift and then they might be like, oh, Nat, can you stay on? Some days I ended up being there for three days in a row or I'd do like two shifts a week. So a lot of these kids, I'd spend a lot of time with them. I'd be able to utilise a lot of like my coaching and my therapies and just everything I learned as well as just like my own life experience and just my own compassion and empathy. And I'd have such a great shift with these kids and then I'd go away for two days, come back, and we'd do straight back at, straight back at, you know, stage one. Right. Um, and then there was a lot of like me being physically assaulted as well. So it got to a point where like the kids, they, they might have like a um, an episode or something and and they just rage or they just, yeah, or they've just had a bad shift with another worker that wasn't as like, I don't know, open to just supporting them or hearing them or anything. And then they've held that in knowing that I'm coming on shift and then they basically just unleash because they've seen me come back time and time again to help them. 
And I just got to a place where I started to get quite physically assaulted. Like they throw, like they'll throw anything that they can find or they'll punch and kick and scream and say whatever they want to you as well. Like, cause they're hurting so much, you know, and you really had to have a thick skin to keep coming back to that. So yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I went through all of that and I started seeing as well, uh, there was uh, quite a few girls that had come through the system and there was um, two young sisters in general that I worked um, very closely with for almost 12 years, uh, 12 months. (laughs) I started learning more and more about their behaviours and seeing what childhood sexual assault had done to them as well, like even in just their drawings or when they'd be watching TV and just things that they like they just how they giggle and laugh at particular things that you just you just know isn't funny and it was coming from more of a space of feeling uncomfortable or feeling triggered so um, so so how old are these kids at that point and how old roughly were they when they were sexually abused so in in particular cases that i'm thinking of they were they were around like they were, it was probably like 4 or 5 years prior to them coming into housing that they were experiencing this. But a lot of the kids that I look like, I looked after kids that were like from five years old to 18, 19 years old. And we even had kids in our care as young as three months old. Yeah, but when it came to like particular children that showed very high behaviours there, they were around 10 years old. And a lot of their abuse from our understanding happened around like four or five years oh. old. Yeah. And it was... um a lot of which is something I'll definitely speak about is like 93% of child sexual abuse, the children, they know the perpetrators. So it's... um, You mean they know them personally kind of thing? They know them personally, yeah. Yeah. So we find, yeah, so this is just the other level of it is that a lot of the children that have experienced this, it's been family members or parents or friends' family. Like it's, it's generally... Yeah, 93% of the time the children know the person. It was whilst I was in youth work that I then learnt a bit more about what's happening with regards to child sex trafficking in Australia and all around the world. So this was like in around about 2020, I started when I was in youth work, the conversation came up whilst I was in youth work and then I was shown about circumstances happening in Australia and just learning a bit more about how the systems in Australia are very much leaning towards protecting pedophiles. And that in itself really triggered like this, I don't know, that passion again within me. And I learned a lot about um, like there's, there's specific things going on in Australia. You've probably heard about it before now as well because it is circulating a bit at the moment. But there is a 90-year um, a suppression order basically that's been placed on police documents in our um, government system. So the police documents, they name some high-up officials that have all had severe crimes against children, so 28 high-up officials, meaning, and, like, the thing is, like, we're we're aware that um, some of these people are former former prime ministers, um, still practising judges and so forth, and we're aware of that because these documents have actually been in the Australian Senate and they've been disclosed by people like Bill Heffernan. So there's there's actual video proof that these documents have been sat in front of several people and basically it's just been something that they haven't wanted to touch. So because of the names on this 
on these documents and it's all and it's linked to a lot of um yeah crimes against children in Australia and then this opened like quite a few boxes for me just in my own mind and and I started to learn a lot of like just factual evidence of what has occurred in Australia and all around the world and then this is kind of like where I started learning of organizations um such as Project Rescue Children that are doing this work and advocating for the children but even before I learnt, um, just a few months before I learnt that Project Rescue Children existed and other organisations, I had actually gone and done some awareness events and some rallies and so forth, just like I got people together and did like awareness events to kind of to kind of help bring awareness to things like the pedophile suppression order on these documents. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask, Natalie, was there many others doing this before you started that first kind of event that you did? Um, not to my knowledge, no. Yeah. yeah. So when I when I started doing that, I just did it off my own bat. I had quite a few hundred people that were willing to have the discussion around. And like, I feel like a, quite a few. That I actually got three hundred and fifty people that said that they'd come to my event. But I, I believe at that time, this is when a lot of this information started to surface. So a lot of people became aware of it, and that's why when I advertised what I learned was happening in Australia that that kind of opened up the conversation for a lot of other people and a lot of other people were already talking about it. But um, I won't go into that too much because there's just so much, so much more that um, that then I did come to learn on such a like grassroots level on what is happening in the world with regards to the reality of child sex trafficking. With, like, we'll, and we'll dive into it, but I think in Australia in particular it's a bit of like out of sight out of mind really like you hear about things happening overseas and for a lot of people you don't give it probably too much thought but I'm just interested to go back you mentioned about protecting pedophiles because I heard and I don't know how true it was but I reckon about 12 months ago that there was some kind of movement I don't know who it was who was pushing it or whatever but it was almost like an empathetic view for pedophiles saying that you know we shouldn't call them pedophiles because that's they can't help it that they're attracted to children. Like it just, it, it was the most mind-boggling thing I've ever heard in my life, and I don't understand the push behind it to kind of say, well, we need to change what we call them because it's not fair to them. Like, where is this coming from, and how is this even in in the same world like a, a conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Very like, thank you for bringing that up as well. It's absolutely very accurate to our times right now because there's almost like. There is this movement and what they're trying to normalise is they're literally trying to normalise pedophilia and they're trying to call them minor attractive persons. That's it. That's what it was. It's just disgraceful. So basically, um, yeah, there there definitely is is that like rising happening, but we've found that it has been shut down to a large degree. So that shows that a lot of people do have a very strong stance against this so that's been really positive but I don't think that that will take any flight because there's more good people in the world than there are scumbags yeah Mm. yeah in terms of child trafficking do you have like how high up on the criminal scale is it across the world so human trafficking and child trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world and it brings in over 150 billion dollars a year so over so a recorded amount so i say recorded amount because so many cases of human trafficking and child trafficking go unreported and there is an 
immeasurable amount of this happening in the world, but a recorded amount of around 20 million human trafficking victims and with about 30% of them being children. So this is on an annual basis. And, and so the numbers are so high. So how does it, I don't even understand, is this dark web kind of stuff? Like how does it even start and finish? Who does it? Who, who, how, does this, how does this system work and how does it eventually get shut down? Yeah, so look, it is different everywhere. And um, as I've just said, like it's it's so fast growing and it's so large and it definitely hides in the shadows. And then in some other cases, in particular countries like the Gambia, which I'll speak a bit more about, it's in plain sight, like the Western pedophiles are walking around there with young Gambian girls. And so that's in plain sight. And then in places like Australia, a lot of what occurs in Australia is through online grooming and also through the pedophile forums in the dark web. So the dark web is a conversation that not many people know much about the dark web at all. And the dark web, it's very much like it's it definitely exists. We know for a fact it exists. We have our operatives at Project Rescue Children. We have um, an IT crew with PRC. And they're actually based in, um, they're based in Russia, our team in Russia. And they actually, they are undercover and they basically can access the dark web and they can see the degree of what's in the dark web. And that is how we do actually find a lot of pedophiles that are like in Australia and so forth as well. And the thing is as well is when it comes to the, the reality of what's going on, within us because Australia is primary a lot of it operates online a lot of it operates online and when it comes to the dark web like the forums in the dark web they have hundreds of thousands of people in each forum and there's an unlimited amount of forums like one particular forum was shut down a couple of years ago and it had 400,000 pedophiles in one forum swapping child abuse material and the only way that these people can actually access into a forum is by sharing their own images of them committing child sexual abuse. So that's, almost, oh my that, God. That, that's how they get into the forums. That's how they get into the forum. So wow. to get into the dark web, another case, to get into the dark web, it takes a specific time type of software to get into the dark web. But once you're in the dark web, they, they swap secrets. They know how to get in there. It's massive. Like it's huge. Like this one forum had four hundred thousand pedophiles. We've um we've got friends that are in like cybersecurity, very high up in in banks and, and institutions like that, so that need to access the dark web for financial problems and and stealing and theft. But that's just unbelievable to hear about the the pedophilia side side of things. You mentioned online grooming. So is that more take the dark web aside? Is that just everyday kind of chat rooms is that things that everybody and anybody can access whether it's a, a young child that's just playing with their friends and and i don't know what like in the day for us it was club penguin and those kind of games that are that are open to a large community is it are they getting access through those kind of yeah innocuous kind of sites so basically anything that has a chat room i can we can guarantee you that there are pedophiles in their grooming that are seeking out children to groom children. Our undercover team, um, in order to be able to catch a lot of people, to be able to then pass this on to authorities and also investigate and work to with, because we work alongside many authorities when it comes to going and actually um, arresting 
particular people that we find in the dark web. So we get contacts through the dark web and then we pass this intelligence onto the local authorities and then we work with them to go and um, rescue and perpetrate or whatever the circumstance is. Prosecute, I mean, not perpetrate. If something like Instagram, Facebook, Roblox, like video games, basically this is this is their way in. So they will they will create a friendship um, under the disguise of another kid and they will um they'll basically groom that child so they will begin you know being friends with that child they'll speak with them maybe like for a period of time they could even groom them for a whole month until the kid actually goes on there and he's like looking forward to playing with his mate that he thinks is another 12 year old boy but it's actually a fully grown man and this happens time and time again and basically um it could get to the point where um, they start grooming them. They start saying like, oh, like how many brothers or sisters do you have? And then they'll start saying like um, they might see a photo of them and be like, oh, you're so beautiful. Like you're like um, and then they might even say like, oh, I think I'm falling in love with you. And then they may try to meet up with them. So they might say, oh, let's meet up at the park or let's. And this is actually so much more common and prolific than what people realize. And especially parents and especially in Australia. Especially in Australia. I feel like in Australia, a lot of people have the wool pulled over their eyes when it comes to online grooming, as well as when it comes to images of children online. This is a big one. I was just going to say, my question was going to be like in today's world of oversharing, there's so many parents that are taking, you know, taking photos of their, their school kids and the area that they're in and where the school is. But even to the extreme of they might think they're protecting them by not showing the name or the logo or people still know, especially predators. That's exactly right. Yeah. A lot of what our team find on the dark web, because there is an abundance of child abuse and material on the dark web in these forums, getting swapped around. And a lot of this content is taken from social media, taken from Instagram, taken from Facebook, and they actually manipulate images to make them to make them child pornography to make them rape pornography so many images that I even see myself of like you know my parents it's more of a just a matter of them being naive to it and very uneducated about it but some images I see people post that image is going like honestly especially on bigger platforms images where you can see any skin on a child or anything that like tight clothing, like so many different circumstances that you would just think are innocent, like that'll never happen. Like like a lot of people believe that that'll never happen to my child or my photo, but I guarantee you if you're like, the thing is like once you put a photo, like a photo online, it's out there. You're not getting that back whether you delete it or not. It's, mm. it's still out there. And there's just so much education that does need to happen around this. And, and it is challenging, especially... Like there's been times where I will um, politely reach out to someone because of a photo that they've posted and I'll just, um, you know, I'll educate them about it briefly. I'll explain, you know, I'm connected with PRC and explain to them that that photo um, needs to be removed from online space. Mm-hmm. And then, but sometimes they will actually be really good about it and other times people will get really defensive and, yeah, so there's definitely a massive education that needs to happen around this because it's just becoming way too prolific to post half-naked photos 
of your mm. children and even just photos that can easily be manipulated because they they take all your emojis off, they take your scribbles and they, oh, really? they, edit, they edit photos. So, like, if there's a photo of a child and they put, like, an emoji over their nipples, they will edit those emojis off the image and they will put nipples on there. So you're not you're not saving your child by putting emojis on there because these these pedophiles they they are doing whatever they can to get their hands on this material. Wow. And it's also as I said it's swapped around it becomes also a commodity as well. So there's there's just so much and that's like very prolific in what's going on in Australia and all around the world but yeah and then there's also you know, the actual boots on the ground, what is occurring with regards to child sex trafficking. Just before we dive into that, I just got a couple more questions regarding the internet and things like that. So we've talked about maybe young children and and the effects that could be there. But what about, say, the teenager that's like, there's apps like Snapchat, like, I mean, for Doss and I, we grew up in that era. So I'm now thinking like the 15, 16, 17 year olds that now it's not their parents taking photos, but they may be whatever, sexting or whatever whatever's going on that, that happens is are these kind of images like is that are they getting access to these kind of things as well and like texting back and forth with people like for example like when we went through school and sex ed like you get an education or rough education about sending nudes for example which a lot of people do like what's your advice for like for a lot of our listeners they might be in that age bracket yeah. like what are you, your advice for that kind of thing just don't do it literally honestly do not take naked photos of yourself and do not share naked photos of yourself with anyone and honestly if you're teenagers as well your account should be on private that is my ultimate recommendation and do not speak to anyone you don't know online as well but when it comes to a lot of the teenagers because yes they've all got these phones in their hand and they become quite naive to the fact that you know you send a photo to one person and you think that that's safe that is now it's out there and and you can never get that back and it's in it's encrypted into the internet and it's accessed like people can access that whether you delete it or not it's just highly recommended to just to every child do not take photos of yourself do not share them and there is also this i've actually only just recently learned about this aspect of it it hasn't been my area of expertise but i would have to look into it a bit more but basically it's my understanding that these days if a child takes a photo of themselves and sends it to someone else, just say unsolicited as well, like a teenager takes a photo of themselves, sends it to someone else, and that person sees it and gets a shock and goes, oh, my goodness, like, look what this person just sent me, and they show someone else, that's actually a criminal offence on the person that has received it unsolicited and showed someone else, and you find that the person that actually sent it isn't necessarily getting the same repercussions. So there is a lot that needs to be cleared up in Australia when it comes to around this as well. But uh, it's not my area of expertise when it comes to um, the teenagers and swapping and sharing the images. All I can definitely say is that the moment you take an image of yourself and send it to someone, um, that is out there and that is that is accessed in the dark web. And it will, yeah, it's not just child material that is being manipulated and swapped around it is it is teenagers and it is adults as well but you know is that is that blackmail involved too so like for example if if you do do that for example take a photo or or whatever you may even it just may be an innocent kind of photo are these people even able to blackmail the person 
that's that's taken it to you know to either send more or do take more action or else this will end up on the internet or in front of your friends and family like is that is there manipulation involved too or not so much uh, yeah, there will be aspects where there de- there's circumstances where definitely there's manipulation involved. But again, it's not really my area of expertise when it comes to, yeah, this area. It's certainly something that is really important and does need to be addressed. But, um, but yeah, it's just not my, not my area. But there definitely is, I've learned through all my youth work as well, like, cause I looked after a lot of teenagers and I had to have these conversations with them. And I just saw how, how predominant it was that they, yeah, just the messages that they send people. Like I didn't see them taking any obviously nude photos, but you just know that it's very much in the culture these days. And yeah, just, just don't do it. Basically it's, that's your body. This is meant to be your safe space. The moment you take a photo of yourself, and send it to someone else it's just that photo could end up anywhere and it could be it could be used in many different ways to really tear you down and I've seen a lot of kids that have been abused for lots of different reasons and that is a form of abuse you know if someone posts that image online or that's sexual abuse in itself like a sexual assault sorry not abuse there's so many layers to this but yeah just my recommendation to every every kid is you know be smart don't don't take photos naked of yourself and send them to anyone. What is the extreme extent, Natalie, that you may have heard? I guess with all the projects that you guys are hearing and and, and diving right into and trying to save as many of these kids as you can, what's been the most extreme extent you've heard or seen a pedophile try and do to to get away with what they're doing? There are so many cases. Um, but I mean, like there was even a case a few years ago now where a young child, um, she was living in, I think we've got it on our page as well, but there was a young child and she was living in a caravan park and she was kicking a ball around anyway. She went to get a ball and she was basically snatched by this pedophile and he ended up like sexually abusing her, like raping her, and he actually ended up killing her. And he went away and he was meant to be put away for quite some time, but he actually declared that he was mentally insane. Oh. And this is what a lot is, well, this is what the stuff that's happening is a lot of the time these absolute dirtbags, these absolute, these pedophiles, they they always claim mental illness or they claim, yeah, or they claim their own abuse, which a lot of the time is not true. And that is literally just a narrative that is almost like, been created internationally that all pedophiles were abused as children like that is not the case that is definitely not the case especially when it comes to a lot of like our child survivors and like as they grow up you'll find the survivors of child sexual abuse would never want to inflict that pain or that suffering on another child so there's so many like as we were just talking about before when it came to that minor attracted persons they're pedophile sympathizers and a lot of the time you'll find that these pedophile sympathizers are actually in a circle like they're they're connected basically if you're a pedophile sympathizer you're a pedophile sympathizer for a reason you know you're protecting them for a reason so yeah when it comes to what's absolutely shocking is honestly how much these like how much these pedophiles get away with, especially in Western societies, Western cultures, especially in Australia. So Australia, um, he ended up getting out after a few months. Jeez. Got out after a few months, declared insane, and then he's actually back out in the public now. And he raped and murdered this young girl. 
And like even recently we've had um, people that have been prosecuted and they've had like a large amount of child sexual abuse material. There was even just recently this man up on the Gold Coast, you might have seen that circulating, but basically um, he had all of this child sexual abuse material. He got prosecuted and now he's back out. He's just back out and he's just working at a local store in Queensland, I mean, once this, once um the details of this got out, a lot of people went backed it, and then he ended up um getting further exposed, and that shop shut down, and so forth. So, with the power of you know the everyday people, these people can face justice to one de- degree or another. But the actual justice system in Australia is so broken. No, uh, yeah, they can be started on the justice system, but and uh, this is just an opinion, and I'm just interested to hear you know, yours, but why do you think there's such a link with high-powered people and pedophilia? So you hear it a lot, whether it's rumours or whether it's conspiracy theories or whatever you may hear, but mentioned before in Australia, politicians, you know, we hear a lot about celebrities like Jeffrey Epstein and that whole, like, saga there and, and just really high-powered people and, and all this trafficking. Do you have a theory as to why there's such a link? Is it that they're born into it, into either wealth or fame or whatever, and it's just a cult, some culture that's emerged over years? But why why is there this link? Yeah, so that's a topic I, I'll choose not to touch on too much just because we've mentioned, I mean, the cases such as um, Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell, like, that that we have got quite a lot of evidence around the crimes that they have committed. Um, but when it comes to any further questions around that right now, we don't have the factual proof in front of us. So um, as Project Rescue Children, I, I just wouldn't want to comment on that until we've actually got a lot of the yeah factual database. But basically, you'll find that there is this idea circulating that a pedophile is an old, seedy-looking, grey, fat man you know, and what we like to teach, and this is all a part of like our child safety workshops and everything that we do as well, and all the education you will see on the Project Rescue Children Instagram page and on Adam Whittington, the CEO's page, we like to educate that pedophiles can look like anyone. Pedophiles can be young, they can be old, they can be teachers, they can be police officers, they can be wealthy, they can be poor. This is all a part of yeah, what we teach when it comes to grooming and pedophilia. We've had several women uh, absolutely involved in it as well. Like, there's a lot of women pedophiles. Like There's just this stigma of it all being men as well, and that's definitely not the case. Wealthy wealthy and poor, um, it, it's actually extremely prolific and it's everywhere. And the thing is, like, this is kind of where it leads to, like, what we are experiencing overseas as well. So at Project Rescue Children, we actually have, so we've got two rescue centres. So, yeah, we got rescue centres, like, in Kenya and in Gambia. And a lot of the operations that we experience overseas and especially in, like, particular areas like the Gambia, a lot of that's, like, Western tourism. A lot of that's rape, Western sex tourism. So these Westerners, um, wealthy and non-wealthy, wealthy and poor, they're coming over and they're literally sexually abusing these children. There is um, a lot of conversation at the moment around these more elite class, but it's prolific throughout the world. Can you maybe explain a bit more about Project Rescue Children and how, like, obviously I'd love to hear how many children the initiative has saved, firstly, and then secondly, how, in terms of intervening with with the actual issue, you know, at heart, in terms of whether it's trafficking or, or pedophilia or whatever it is, 
is it conversate like how does it work is are you guys investigating it as an organization and then speaking with authorities or is it vice versa i'd love to know how it works it's both it is investigating and working with authorities and that is the majority of it as well because i mean project rescue children so project rescue children was created by adam whittington our ceo and he's a um, former police officer and a former military personnel. And basically, there was just so much red tape when it would come to him doing rescues back in those, um, when he was in those professions and so forth. And so he actually stepped away and created his own organisation. Um, he does have another organisation which is focused on child rescues. Um, sorry, that's focused on kidnappings, which is like a whole other Uh, conversation so that's like custody kidnappings and he's been doing that for over 20 years and then um it was one particular case where a child had been taken by his mother um they were living in the uk with the child's father and the mother took the child over um overseas to laos and she basically left the child there and then went over to america to start her life and she had left the child Um, She basically kidnapped him, left him with family. And then um, Adam was contacted by the father to rescue this young boy because the father had gone through every single means possible, exhausted every financial means possible to try to get his son back through all the court system. So he contacted Adam and the team. To summarise, they went and did that, um, that mission. And that particular mission, when they got over to Laos, they had to pretend to basically be a documentary crew. So they had to, like, in order to get into the villages over there, you can't just rock up as a Westerner and just be like, hey, I'm just looking around. Like, um, they're not going to let you in. They're going to get you out. So basically, Adam and the team, they created this narrative that they were a documentary crew from Australia. They were going over there to basically film the area So whilst they were over there, they were able to get into the village and look out for this young boy. They had a bit of an idea of where um, the mother's family might be living and so forth. Once they got over there, they found out that this young boy was about to be sold on the black market. So he was about to be sold by the family because basically the family didn't want to look after him. He was extremely malnourished. He He was just in a like despicable condition basically when they first saw him this was the rescue that birthed project rescue children because they were able to rescue this young boy and basically the outcome if he wasn't rescued was he was about to be sold into the black market for sex trafficking for organ harvesting which is a whole nother topic as well which we can touch on as well um all of these crimes they do exist like it's not just like there's a whole lot of like ideas of what exists out there and a lot of it is linked to like Hollywood movies which is all very glamorized and it doesn't show the reality of what is actually occurring in our world so anyway Adam and the team rescued this young boy and then um from there Adam then wanted to create another branch of the organization but he ended up creating a brand new organization Project Rescue Children that's focused on rescuing children from child sex trafficking. So PRC was created in 2017. Since then, there has been an outnumbered amount of like a huge number of rescues. But yeah, so with regards to specific rescues, is that what you'd like to know? Would you? Oh, well, th- that was part, like what you just answered was perfect. Um, I think it was more uh, what I would also love to know is, yeah, maybe more around like, 
as the organisation? How many rescues have, have they been able to make since since it began? So we don't necessarily, just for integrity reasons and just we don't actually count the number like you will see on the project rescue children page we do have whenever there's a new rescue we'll show you how many children were rescued and how many perpetrators and so forth but if I were to give it an absolute number yeah it just kind of feels out of integrity with what we do it feels like more of a um, there's other organizations that do that but for us it's really about if there's been there's been hundreds if not thousands of rescues Anyone that goes and has a look at Project Rescue Children has a look at Adam Whittington. You'll see the amount of children um, there that we share. Like even this year, it's it's been well over well over a hundred and well over. Yeah, so there's there's been a lot of rescues even this year. There was one rescue earlier this year that involved around forty um, children under the ages of five years old, and they were in Kenya. And um, these children were due to we so basically the um our undercover team caught wind that there was a potential yeah trafficking syndicate that was happening and we didn't know how many kids were going to be there and the team they went in and they found yeah there was about 40 children these children they were all about to be sold for which is another big topic they were all about to be sold for what's known as child sacrifice. And this is also for organ harvesting. So this is all black market. Um, this is a whole nother box of reality that is going on in our world. But yeah, when it comes to numbers, there's been a lot of numbers and there's no other organization that is as transparent about, you know, rescues and rehabilitations. And as I said, we've got rescue centers. No other organization has rescue centers where we are rehabilitating these survivors. So. so I've got a couple of questions. So once a child is rescued, they go, what's the process? I'm guessing they go to this rehabilitation center. And how do you, in a long-term view, get them back into society in a safe kind of manner? But I'd also love you just to explain a little bit more on organ harvesting, but maybe firstly, or just, yeah, what's the process once you guys go in? Like you say, 40 children in Kenya, what does the next, you know, say six months look like for those kids, but also five years? It really depends on the rescue and the child. So basically it depends on the circumstances of the rescue as well. So some kids may have been taken from their family, like kidnapped, were being sold into sex trafficking or that kind of circumstances. So that would be a matter of rehabilitation and assessing the safety of their home and if that but a lot of the time the children that we rescue there's no way they'd ever go back home and some of the children like these children we didn't even have a paper trail where they came from sure yeah so this yeah so that that's the particular circumstance so that was in that's actually Uganda where those children were rescued but this has been there's been several so basically when it comes to children that are rescued they'll come to the rehabilitation centers we basically our rescue centers we have a whole lot of different campaigns for PRC. This is a good way that we've found we can be really transparent with um, everyone that donates, all of our donors, everyone that supports. Basically, we create campaigns um, for specific things. So we do have aftercare packs um, that our team put together because we are operational in over 14 countries. So we, we have lots of different campaigns for all over the world. So when it comes to particular children that are rescued, they will get their aftercare pack. They will come to our rescue centre and we have specialised people at our rescue centres that are there to help rehabilitate these children. And they could be living they could be living there for forever. It also depends on the um, 
yeah, just your circumstances. Like if we're linked with the authorities at the time, then like sometimes these rescues will happen in a country where we don't have a rescue centre. And this is a big part of like, because PRC is purely like volunteer run and we're purely run on donations and we're a non-government organisation. We are not connected to any governments, um, not for profit. So basically our intention is to get rescue centres all around the world and to be yeah. able to, when we rescue children from all around the world, we'll always be able to have them in our own rescue centre that is set up and ready to to support them and rehabilitate them. But, yeah, it's different for every circumstance and it's also different because, like, we, as PRC, we have uh, formal connections with, like, police and, and just authorities in lots of different countries. So we have set up all these formal partnerships so that way um, there is a large range of support when it comes to when we rescue a child and what the aftercare of that child looks like. Sure. Dave mentioned it before, but the organ harvesting, when you mentioned that, to me, that's uh, like, I don't hear that. So, and I find that just the thought of that terrifying. What is that? And obviously, it has a lot to do with the dark web. Yeah. So, not necessarily the dark web, the black market. Black market, um, sorry. Yeah. 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 But I mean, it is on the dark web as well. Like when it comes to being able to source or purchase, uh, it's a very, it's a very deep topic. But basically, organ harvesting, um, child sacrifice, child sex trafficking, exploitation, all of these topics, all of these experiences are a reality. And when it comes to organ harvesting, so Uganda, for instance, Uganda is the epicenter of child sacrifice. And basically, in these very poor countries, people are in such desperation. There's so many different circumstances, but there are circumstances where People will sell their child to what they call, there's actually like witch doctors over there. So basically people will sell their child to a witch doctor for wealth or for health because they're, they're, they're basically taught, they're brainwashed to believe that that in um, in through sacrifice they will be giving their family and themselves and they're in such dire desperation. And in other circumstances, children are kidnapped for organ harvesting. So they're basically... Uh, basically exactly that their organs are harvested and sold on the black web it's a very deep talking and there's only so much i can actually share about that here um factually off the top of my head but this this is a reality that is happening we have we have rescued children from child sacrifice we have also been there in the aftermath of child sacrifice we sit our team sees like in the black market like it's all there it's evidentially occurring in our world and yeah basically the children are being harvested for organs. It's unbelievable. I've got, I know we've been going over an hour, Natalie, we won't take too much more of your time, but one more sort of question for me. It's, it's a bit more of a different one, but for you guys as a team, so I'm talking about you personally, are you guys protected too? And do you have any fears about people potentially coming after you as although you're doing an amazing job and saving people's lives and and 90% of people who are sane would say, well, this is unbelievable work, but then you've got this percentage of people that are evil and it could be conspiring together. Are you guys protected? Are you fearful of people coming after you guys to try and stop this organisation or or even harm people involved? No. Yeah, there's no fear around that. Basically... You've got to you've got to have it in you to do this kind of work. You've got to have it into you to advocate for this kind of work as well. But no, the, you'll see. Um, even the CEO Adam, he's there's no fear there. There's a lot of um, like we're not naive to 
to the reality of what we're sharing and what we're exposing. But we are connected. The relation It's all about the relationships you build as well, like just like the partnerships and connections that we have built in each country and everything and the way that operations are conducted is done in a way that is, I mean, at the end of the day, it's always going to be a dangerous field, but it's this the the drive that drives you is children like you yeah I don't know like it's just in it has to be in your DNA it's in my DNA and there's just no fear and there's no fear like the team basically we're all here to educate to rescue rehabilitate like it's all about there's so many levels of it and the more that people that you have around you that are doing it and we're all doing it together and the organization itself is growing people are becoming more and more aware of it I don't feel any fear. I don't feel that there's anything to be afraid of. I think that there's that many people that are open to the conversation these days as well, that it's not hiding in the shadows and we're not voices coming out of the shadows. Like this is out in the public now and it's just up to people to educate themselves on it, which is actually something that I also just wanted to touch on was um, the work in the Gambia as well. So so we are an Australian. So we were first registered as an Australian organisation and we're also registered in the UK Um, registered in Gambia, now the Ukraine and the Philippines as well, but we're operational in over 14 countries. Our child rescue centres are in Kenya and Gambia. And just earlier this year, I myself and my husband travelled over to Gambia to um, visit the child rescue centre that we have there. And, yeah, we do have children there as well. So we went over there to – my husband's a builder, so he he wanted basically a roof on the rescue centre because – rescue center itself like obviously like in the Gambia in Australia like I mean in Africa the quality of the buildings and everything are not great and the roof on the rescue center a big wind would come and the roof would almost just blow off like the volunteers had to hold down the roof so we created a campaign raised money to build a whole new roof on the rescue center so we went back over it um we went to Gambia in March Dane supervised a new roof build and he installed a shower and a toilet for the very first time there at the rescue center so basically they were all just washing like it's just the these countries are just in absolute dire straits like the poverty over there is just it's unbelievable to me like you go over there and you come back and you're like why why are we like this and why are they like that basically so we we helped to um build the rescue center a lot better and you can see that all over our socials as well but whilst we're over there because um, we have a lot of ambassadors. We have like our team and then we have volunteers and we have our team all around the world. And we have um, some workshops and stuff that have been created over time. And I put together um, with PRC a workshop called Be Brave and it's our child safety workshop. And when we were over in the Gambia in March, I began taking that around to schools and I spoke with hundreds of kids all about online. So all about grooming pedophilia, online safety, um, everyday safety as well. Because when we were over in the Gambia, there was a lot of circumstances where kids would try to, like, they'd want to lift to the next village, so they'd try to jump in our car and they'd be knocking and saying, like, can we get in, can we get in? And it's like a private vehicle. It's not like they have, like, public taxis over there. Um, not necessarily safe, but safer than jumping in someone's private vehicle. When I created this child safety workshop, my intention was to be able to educate every child around grooming pedophilia, online safety, everyday safety, and also Gambia is known. So whilst Uganda is known for child sacrifice, Kenya is known for very much um, child rape. 
and Gambia is very well known for um, rape tourism. So it's the Westerners that are going over and raping Gambian children. So it's like a, it's a business in the Gambia, basically. And this is done through a range of different ways. Like um, the Westerners, whether they're from Australia or America or the UK or wherever, the Westerners are going over there. They're building relationships with local families, maybe local um, mums and dads, and they're basically then offering their circumstances where they might offer to pay for the child's education for 12 months if when they come back they can, you know, play with their child, spend a bit of time with their child. So there's those circumstances. And then there's circumstances as well where there's like, yeah, the rape tourism, there's like basically like a travel agent but for children. So there's all these Westerners going over paying to be with a child and rape a child for an hour and then they go home. So this is prolific in the Gambia and this is a big reason why PRC is in the Gambia. Yeah. It started in the Gambia in, it was 2021 actually, so it's just been a couple of years and um, we've already got a rescue centre there, we've got a big team there and then with the child safety workshop, we started um, going around and teaching this at schools and I found um, I kept getting contacted because kids would be stepping forward to their teachers after my workshop to basically disclose that they'd been groomed or they'd been abused. So we'd already had kids stepping forward. And whilst I was over there in March, the team set up a, the team and I set up a meeting with the Ministry of Education while we're over there because in the Gambia, we have a formal connection with the police. We have a formal connection with immigration and tourism, which really helps us with our operations. Yeah, so we went into the Ministry of Education. I basically shared with them our Be Brave Child Safety Workshop and just how we had been educating the children. Um, we do educate them, as I was speaking earlier, that pedophiles can look like anyone. They can be old, young, good-looking, bad-looking. They can be police. They can be teachers. So we are teaching them all about this. And then um, my final message in there is just speaking with them about how incredibly brave and courageous it is to speak up if they are a victim or if their friends are a victim, that with their bravery stepping forward and disclosing their own their own cases, basically, their own experiences, they could save another child. So, yeah, so we had children stepping forward. I proposed, um, I basically went in and did the meeting and showed the Ministry of Education our workshop and then um, myself and PRC, we offered that they could add it, the workshop into their school curriculum and we offered it free of charge to them and they were actually thrilled. So the director of curriculum, he said that he'd even had teachers that were involved in child exploitation in the past and he found out and he was horrified. So he's just like, obviously, that teacher's not working there, those teachers, but he was saying that this is everywhere and we haven't yet been teaching the children about this and it's just... Yeah. It, it's horrendous how many children have been abused. So now the workshop is it's launching in the new school curriculum in the Gambia in September. It's going out to every single school in the Gambia out to 1,500 schools and it's going to be taught to over 100,000 kids. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. So and we set up like a child helpline number and everything as well. Right. So that's all. Um, so that's a big part. And then now that's actually being... The workshop's being taken to Kenya now as well. And, yeah, so we're very, and we're also starting a home education program in Australia, and that'll go out to a lot of the Western 
countries as well. So we're going to start educating from like the homeschooling communities and the, and the parents. So we've got a lot in the mix at the moment to be able to start educating at more of a grassroots level because some of the topics we've spoken about are not as easy for people to digest. But if we can start teaching people about the importance of, you know, educating your young child about their body and like teaching them correct terminology of their body and teaching them that this is their body and it's not for anyone else to touch and so forth. So there are so many so many things that we are to educate parents about in Australia and all around the world. And yeah, so we're getting we're getting in there and yeah, making as much change as we possibly can in every area. Sure. Well, I'm 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 sure Natalie on, on behalf of I can speak on behalf, I know myself, but probably D as well. My eyes have been completely just opened in terms of a new world, a horrible world, and one that so many of us you know, very naive and have no idea that it's even happening, you know, to a certain extent in our own backyard, you know, from us to you, what you guys are doing is incredible. And um, if you would like, do you want to share, I guess, where they'll find more information on, on I guess, the, the organisation and, and yourself? Thank you. So I just want to say that whilst it is a, a horrible, like, it is a horrible topic to to have to digest and and think about and talk about. I just want to just express how grateful I am to be able to speak about it because the more that we do speak about it, the more it brings it into the light and it cannot exist in the shadows anymore. And that's why we do speak about it. Like it's not an enjoyable thing to speak about, but it is so important. So thank you. But yes, you can find us. So projectrescuechildren.com.au and you can also, um, you'll see our social medias as well. We're on Instagram, Project Rescue Children. Adam Whittington is the CEO. And you can see my page there as well, underscore Natalie London. But yeah, basically, if you jump onto Project Rescue Children, you'll see all of our campaigns. We have campaigns currently running in Uganda to pierce the ears of as many children as we can. Because if you pierce the ears of children, they're basically seen as damage to like a witch doctor. So the witch doctor will not right. want to do the organ harvesting or the child sacrifice because the child has scars. So we're oh. doing a campaign to pierce the ears of as many kids in Uganda as we possibly can, where um, we're looking to build a school in the Gambia. We've got the child rescue aftercare packs, which um, there's so many campaigns and stuff that you can jump on and support there with PRC as well. But reach out if you have any questions as well well honestly we thank god for people like you and, and adam it's it's like you said it's tough to digest and hopefully for anybody listening and watching that you know if you've got a spare couple bucks you can throw behind this incredible cause because obviously it's going to go such a long way i mean we all worry about our little problems each day and get caught up and, and anxious and upset about things but when you when you listen for an hour or over an hour and about how serious these things are that go on it's eye-opening as Doss said so Natalie just want to acknowledge you thank you so much for the work you do thank you for sharing time with us and being so open yeah really really appreciate it thank you so much guys I really appreciate you having this chat with me so thanks for inviting me on Dee, wasn't that episode just awesome? Oh, mate, I got so much out of it. I'm sure you did too. And, of course, thank you to everyone who listened. Guys, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For sure. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple. It goes such a long way to helping the show. And, of course, you have your chance to get a shout-out. Don't forget to go and follow us over on Instagram as well. What's the Instagram, D? It's at D underscore. D-O-S-A-N-D-D underscore. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in the next episode.